Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Before I introduce you to today's Spirit in Action guest, I want to remind you one final time that you can still go to the northernspiritradio.org website and fill out our Better Know a Listener survey. Flood us with your responses. Those who respond will be entered into our drawing for their choice of either $25 or a pile of Northern Spirit Radio swag, including our t-shirt, our tote bag, and CDs from Song of the Soul guests we've had on. You'll be rich in great stuff, and we'll be richer by knowing you. So go to northernspiritradio.org and fill out the survey now. Or maybe you want to just wait until after you listen to today's Spirit in Action guest, J.E. McNeil. If the name sounds familiar, maybe it's because we've had her on several times before on several topics. J.E. is a lawyer and for 11 years headed up the Center on Conscience and War, including advocacy for conscience subjectors and soldiers. And today she's here to talk to us about conversations with the other. You surely know how few of those conversations are happening these days, with most of us living in echo chambers of our own points of view. There are skills to develop and insights to be garnered via the presentation she has been sharing widely as part of her organization, On the Level LLC. J.E. McNeil joins us by phone from the Washington, D.C. area. J.E., it's great to have you back again for Spirit in Action. It's great to be back to chat with you. And I think you now get your official frequent flyer miles. Woo-hoo. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know what this is. Maybe it's five or something times that I've had you since 2005 when we started out Northern Spirit Radio. How are things going there? Well, yesterday was warmish because the air conditioning died in our office and it was the hottest day of the year. But other than that, all good. Isn't it also a time of year or life or century or something where there's more rancor in the air than perhaps ever before? Now, you lived through the 1960s, so maybe this is not at all true, but how how do you feel about the emotional, societal angst temperature in the air? Uh, Well, that's a different question. And yes, I think it's actually worse in many ways than in the uh, 60s and, and better in other ways. The worst being the level of vitriol and contempt and the better being the fact that people will stand up and say no in a way that was less common than certainly in the early 60s, but even even later, it, it was a smaller group of people. Now, any number of people will say no, which I think is a very heartening thing and hopeful thing. I think we want to get into some details of that as we talk about your work, but people should know that I started out talking to you way back, almost 13 years ago, about your work with the Center on Conscience and War, because I've been a war tax resistor and I connected with the Center because of those issues. Had you come do a training here in Eau Claire to local folks about the draft law and all of that, part of what I think people may struggle with is the idea that you, a lawyer who's also been an advocate for certain parts of the conversation, that your work now is to get people to listen to each other to get rid of that rancor. 
honestly, I've always felt that that was part of the role of, of a lawyer. It's how can you get people to communicate enough to come to some kind of resolution. And sometimes you do that because you have a third party, a judge or arbitrator, who tells you what the solution is. And other times, if the lawyers do their jobs right, they can help people find the solution without that kind of result. That's always been the way I practice law. I think I've told you in the past that my ex-wife was a lawyer. She chose not to practice She liked the research. She liked principles of law. Her mind worked well that way. But she didn't like the fighting. And so the one thing that she had considered at one point going into was a kind of a divorce mediation thing where instead of having lawyers fight it out in court and just argue with the judge that, you know, we should get this for my side or not, that you'd work actually with a therapist arbitrator to help try and have the couples come to a decision. Now, that's a kind of law that is not very common. Or am I mistaken? Is that a bigger portion of the law picture than I've understood before? Actually, that's something that's changed over time. Mediation is required in almost every domestic case that I'm aware of in the country that you have to go through mediation first. Now, some people do it in a very perfunctory manner, but when it's done right, it can help resolve a lot of the issues and take away some of the rancor. There are also changes in, even in the criminal scene, where you have more of an opportunity for victims to, you know, kind of voice the harm that came to them. For example, I was burglarized, and the burglar took my laptop and my camera, and what he didn't realize, of course, was he took the last photographs I ever took of my mother. She died the next week. So I had an opportunity at, at his sentencing to write a letter to to him and to the judge about that this wasn't just about taking things, that it wasn't just about money, that he also took memories. That's a real change. I mean, 50 years ago, a burglar's victims usually wouldn't have anything to say in a court. It would just be, you know, did you own this? Was it taken from you? So I, I think there have been some positive change in the law, but even when I first started practicing law, part of the job of a good lawyer was to help people find ways to a solution that didn't necessarily involve going to court. Is that the definition of a good lawyer? Or, I mean, there was a, a woman who was in Eau Claire, where I live now, that when my ex wife and I were going through divorce, she happened to know this person from law school who was a year ahead of her in law school. This woman was known as particularly bloodthirsty and, you know, take no prisoners, get everything for her side. So going to her, now we actually both met with her, but she made it clear, you know, I can only represent one of you, not both of you. And so she was representing my wife and I didn't have a lawyer representing me. Some people would say that was stupid, but also I trusted my ex-wife, even though we were going through this time that was fraught with the dangers of fear, anger, all those things coming up. And we did it well, in part because we had a clearness committee at our meeting who met with us to anchor us in love so that we wouldn't do things otherwise. Now, that's, that's an added tool we had that other people don't necessarily have. How much has the system changed nationwide, or is this only in Washington, D.C., where you live, that maybe the courts are a bit different, or is this truly nationwide type thing? As far as I know, it's nationwide. Mediation in domestic cases is nationwide. I would be surprised to find that there was a court anywhere that was a divorce court that didn't require mediation at some level. And I think that's good. And I'm I'm not saying that there aren't times when it isn't appropriate for an attorney to, as you put it, go for the jugular. 
But, you know, I think that there are way more times in the practice of law where you spend, such as when people come to me and they say, oh, we want to start a business together. And I say, okay, let's make all these decisions now about how you break up. And they're all like, why would we want to do that? Well, so that you're not, you know, you're not angry at yourself later. And people were very shocked to find out my husband and I had a cohabitation agreement before we married and a prenuptial agreement when we married, not that we ever had anything. And they said, why would you do that? It, it just shows that you don't trust each other. And I said, no, it allows us to trust each other. <laughs> you don't have to worry that later this guy is going to come back and bite you on the ass because you, uh, you know, are mad at each other now. You should always make your agreements on how to break up when you love each other and care about each other and not when you're mad. That's the worst time. And that is, in effect, what the stuff with the clearness, I mean, the clearness committee for people listening are not Quakers. When you get married under the care of a Quaker meeting, there's a committee that sits with you to explore your clearness and the clearness of the meeting to take it under your care. So these are people we loved and loved us. And so when we're going through divorce, you know, five years later with a kid involved, how do you do that lovingly when there's fear and anger? And to be rooted with people you love or to a place where we've already established ourselves. I, I think that's kind of resource that our society makes less and less available to us because we move around so much. We're disconnected in many ways. We're isolated. We're on Facebook in our silos, but we're not face-to-face connected, rooted, having the shoulder there to cry on in the best way. So, I mean, we do need resources, and so your workshop, J.E., is one of those resources that are training people. Now, again, explain your transition from working for the Center on Conscience and War to where you are now and the degree that you got along the way. Well, I'm an attorney, as we've made clear, and I practiced law for quite a while before I became the executive director of the Center on Conscience and War, but I've always had a practice where I was doing peace and justice work, so representing conscientious objectors and and war tax resistors and demonstrators, but I also represented murderers, and I represented busboys, and I represented multimillionaires, and so it was very eclectic practice. And after I was at the center for 11 years where I spent a lot of time talking about peace and representing conscientious objectors and and people in the military, I left and got a degree on conflict transformation at Eastern Mennonite University, which I thought was a logical next step for what I was doing, sort of combining some of what I was as a lawyer with some of what I was as a peacemaker. And so you've got that degree with the objective of going which direction? I mean, I assume that this was a step along the way. Yeah, I mean, what I thought I was going to do was going to go do, you know, development work in India or something. But I noticed through my courses that people would talk about these amazing things they'd done in South Africa or someplace. And I'd go, wow, that was amazing. And then somebody would come in and talk about Congress, and I'd go, really? Oh, wow, you know, so I looked at myself and I thought, hmm, <laughs> clearly I'm I'm more impassioned about my own country and the problems it has and the solutions it needs. And so I've continued to stay focused on the United States rather than another country as where I want to put my work, where I want to help try change things for the better. And I've, I've done work along the way for several years now. I left the center in 2010, so eight years of doing different kinds of trainings, and in particular, 
during the inaugural week and for the year following, I did a bunch of bystander training to help people when they see an injustice step in in a way that doesn't escalate it, that de-escalates it if possible and protects the person who's being targeted. From there, I gradually concluded that there was another training that I thought was more needed, and that's the one that I'm doing now, which is the conversations with the other. I think because you said you've worked a lot on peace, social justice issues, since you've worked in that area a lot, that puts you, at least in a lot of people's point of view, on one particular side of the continuum, right? There's certainly people all along the continuum, but the other are those people who are not peace and social justice. How can you characterize them with other than saying they're not you? What descriptors are not inflammatory? Well, the concept behind the training is whoever your other is. I have my other. I would actually include a lot of peace activists who drive me nuts on many occasions. (laughs) But no, I think it's fair to say that I'm a peace activist. I wouldn't deny it. I think where it gets murky is when people try to decide if I'm a liberal or a leftist or moderate. I don't think very many people would consider me a conservative, although I I consider myself a conservative about uh, criminal law because I want to conserve the Constitution. That's the original definition of that term. So your other is whoever you make your other, and it doesn't have to be mine. Before we got on the air, J.E., I was talking to you about how we might best convey what you're doing. To some degree, what I'd really like is for everybody to sit in on one of your trainings. We're not going to do that. You've got an audience that can respond of just one, me, but there are all the listeners in the 35 stations across the U.S. who might want to respond. And so I do want to point out, folks, that I have a link to J.E. McNeil's Facebook page on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. So if you know how to spell J.E. McNeil, her initials, J. period, E. period, McNeil, you know, Facebook only allows you to represent it in certain ways. The easiest way to get there is NorthernSpiritRadio.org. So what I would like to do, if it's okay with you, J.E., is to essentially simulate the main topics of a presentation you might do on Conversations with the Other. And to get that started off, we really have to introduce you. You know, you'd normally stand up in front of a group and people can engage you to come do this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You're willing to travel far outside of Washington, D.C., aren't you? Oh, yes. I'm very happy to. If you are willing to pay for my ticket, I'll come. Okay. And you have an organization. Originally, you had a nonprofit you founded, but now it's a LLC. What is the organization and what's the purpose of it, besides personal enrichment? (laughs) Well, my mortgage company would argue whether I've been successful at personal enrichment. But it's on the level LLC. It was originally created as a nonprofit, but I found that structure too restricting on the kinds of things I want it to do. And what is the purpose of the organization? The purpose of the organization is to help me write and speak. I mean, it's basically me being a speaker and trainer and and writer about these issues concerning our government in particular, what's going on in our nation right now. The reality is, is that things have become so, well, cankerous is the word that comes to mind right at the moment. 
A good Texan word. The good Texan word. You know, our system is very close to being completely broken. But on the same hand, it is that brokenness has opened up opportunities in a way for people to step up. For example, my childhood best friend, who I think has only voted a few times, I actually persuaded her to call her congressional member and speak about a bill. I mean, that's just mind-blowing to me. She, she's never had any interest in politics at all, but now she's interested enough to speak to her congressional member. That's an opening. The, the thing about brokenness is that sometimes it creates openings for people to grow in a way they never would otherwise. I'm always ever the optimist. But I also want to help make that happen and to facilitate that. And so part of what I want to do is to help us find ways to bring our country back to a broader consensus. And that's the goal of the workshop is to help us find ways to communicate with people with whom we disagree about political or or whatever. This isn't the divorce situation, but it is about people that we love and care about and spend time with or people that we know, however, that we want to understand and communicate with and to help bring about a broader consensus. When I was a girl, the news came from three television stations, and they were really kind of hard to tell apart. And there were newspapers around the country, but the difference between the newspapers was not huge. And we watched all the same television shows. I mean, you'd get up the next day and go and talk about, you know, I Love Lucy when I was younger, or Mary Tyler Moore when I was older, or MASH. You know, everybody watched the same shows. And for various reasons, both by deliberate acts of some with very malevolent motives, some who were just greedy, and others who were just intrigued by the possibility, that's all changed. We all get our news from sources that cater to what we want to hear. We get our entertainment. I mean, our entertainment's different. We watch different television shows. We don't even watch the same television shows. And increasingly, between those actions and the algorithms that are presented by Google and Facebook and Instagram and everybody else, we're been put into silos, and we're no longer even communicating with each other. When I was engaged in politics as a young woman, I had a car accident, and the guy who stopped to help me was this Republican council member in Houston. We actually knew each other in passing, so we knew each other's politics. And he said, is there anything I can do to help you? And I said, well, I was going to take this information over, and I named the most liberal possible candidate for office to her office, and I can't do it now. And he says, I'll take it. And I trusted him, and I gave it to him, and he took it. Whereas today, that conversation wouldn't have happened, much less would I have trusted him to take it or would he have taken it. It's that kind of brokenness, the unwillingness to talk to each other in a decent human manner that is one of the real problems. In fact, Arthur Brooke of the American Enterprise Institution said that the problem with politics today is the utter contempt we have for each other, that we no longer view the person who we disagree with as, as worthy of existing. And people that I know and care about write these vicious things and use vicious names and show no respect for anyone that they disagree with anymore. And that's an increasing problem. So that's some of the stuff I want to work against is, is to get us back to where we're, we don't have to agree with each other, but we should be able to live with each other. 
we should be able to have Thanksgiving and Christmas together in our families without, you know, saying, no, we can't allow this family member to come because their views are just so odious and Mm -hmm. we'll have to have a blood feud right there. Do we have any kind of objective measure of how much this siloing has happened. I interviewed someone recently, Howard J. Ross. His book was about our search for belonging. We have a longing for belonging. And because of this, he said, the way that the dynamics have been built now, we don't have a bell curve of opinion in this country, liberal, conservative, that kind of thing. We don't have a bell curve. He says we have a dumbbell curve with the big bulges out at the end. I talked to someone else and he said, well, it's always been that way. We've always had a dumbbell curve in society. It's never been a bell curve. And I said, well, this is the most rancorous time. And he said, well, you don't know about 1800 or so, Jefferson on one side and others, they were literally fighting fisticuffs, you know, over the issues. That's how dysfunctional our government was at that time and the people reflecting that. I agree that this isn't the first time we've had such rancor. What's different to me is the siloing, the cutting off in a way that didn't happen before. During the Vietnam era and the Civil Rights era, you still lived next door to people that you didn't agree with, and you still went to church with people that you didn't agree with, and you still, there was much more interaction. You still watch the same shows. You still got the same news. That's where the cutoff is different to me. And, yeah, I am fully aware of the fistfights that happened. I think part of that was that fistfights were more acceptable then rather than that things were worse. But yes, <laughs> we, so, can, kind of, we can make America great again. We can go back to <laughs> punching people in the face, yeah. But the reality is, is that there's always periods where there's a huge strife and divisions as there was during the civil rights and anti-war period, as there was during the Civil War, as there was during any number of other periods. But like I said, the difference is, is that even when you had those periods, people basically lived together, went to school together, went to church together. And that's really the critical difference is how complete the divide has become and the additional contempt involved in the way we treat each other. Maybe it has a very significant thing to do with The fact that we have fewer and fewer face-to-face connections. I see people posting on Facebook and other places comments that you would never say to a person's face. But that kind of anonymity, the extra layer of distance and separation allows us to objectify the outside world. And so we're not in church, we're not in school, we're not sitting at a desk next to someone, so we don't have the normal civility that comes with social interaction. People like to blame it all on Facebook. I mean, there's a pretty big tendency to say it's all their fault. They certainly are participating, but we are all siloing ourselves. And explain a little bit more about which silos we're going into. Well, there's probably more than two, but there's certainly two very large ones, which is kind of the left and the right the blue states and and the red states. And it is, as you said, a natural tendency. And normally when I give these workshops, one of the first thing I do is I ask people how many people know other people in the room. And I'm usually at a conference where a lot of people know each other and they will raise their hands. And then I'll say, well, you know, how many of you are sitting next to people that you know? And most of them will raise their hands. And I say, how many of you are sitting next to people you don't know? 
and very few people will raise their hands. And I'll say, you just exhibited what we're talking about. This isn't completely unique to the Internet age. It is, as the book you described, a natural tendency for us to look for like and hang out with like and to basically segregate ourselves according to knowing people. But it's something that we have to work to overcome. So I will have them get up and and rearrange themselves so everybody's as many people as possible sitting next to somebody they don't know, which is always a useful thing because you never know what you'll learn that way. But long before I ever got involved with Facebook, I noticed that since I'm strange enough that I have conservative friends and liberal friends, in fact, my Supreme Court nominee, you have to have two attorneys to sign your application to become a member of the Supreme Court bar. One of them was Bill Clinton's lawyer, and the other one was Newt Gingrich's lawyer. (laughs) I've always loved that about my life, that I had those friendships. But I would notice that depending on who signed in, they'd take me to different pages when I would like Google or Bing or any of the search engines. And I had friends who were engaged politically who created kind of different personas for their computer so that they could research conservative issues and liberal issues. And that was long before I was active in Facebook. So I don't think it's just Facebook. And I don't think it's per se the lack of face-to-face. It's the lack of our having created our own self-rules that we made for churches and schools that say you don't behave that way. We could have created a society within Facebook where we didn't tolerate that. And I'm seeing it increasingly that people are not willing to tolerate that, at least within the Facebook world that I live although I I do keep my Facebook page public because I'm willing to be out there. But I've developed some real friendships with people that I have never met online, which is nice. So it's, it's not entirely the technology. It's partially the technology and partially the people who find it intriguing to create technology that can learn all about you and figure out about you. It's partially some real bad actors who want to split us, who do things deliberately to split us. And that's partially our own natural tendencies to seek like. So it's a combination of things. Folks, today for Spirit in Action, we're speaking with Jay McNeil. I've had her here on Spirit in Action a number of times Mm -hmm. since 2005 when we began our work. Today she's talking about conversations with the other as part of her organization on the Level LLC. She does trainings, visitation to help people explore how to have that conversation, how to bind us into a single nation again, which we've less and less become. And I'll say more about that in a moment, but first I want to remind you, you are listening to Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, northernspiritradio.org. For just about another week, we've got a listener survey on our site. I'd really love it if you'd go there and just let us know who's listening As part of our reward to you, it will enter you in a drawing for either $25 or some Northern Spirit Radio swag to reward you for helping us out, for helping us better know our listener. The swag includes a Northern Spirit Radio t-shirt, tote bag, and some music. So you'll be rich either way, and we'll be better for knowing you face-to-face a bit through your contributions. So please do fill out our listener survey. On our site, there's all kinds of things. You can find the 35 stations 
nationwide, the carrier programs. You can find links to our guests. So when you want to find Jay McNeil and don't know how to type that and how to find her on Facebook, the link is on northernspiritradio.org. There's a place for comments, two-way communication. We like not only talking, but listening. So please post a comment when you visit. And there's a donate button. This is full-time work. It's supported 100% by listener contributions. Please donate when you come. Even more important, I love local community radio stations, not only because they're they're the folks who carry these programs, but because they're providing an alternative voice. They allow the community to speak up and listen to each other, whereas more and more our media has been globalized. And so now some six corporations own 90, 95% of the media in the United States. That means we hear very few voices, and we love supporting local voices. So start that by supporting your local community radio station. There's more I could say about that, but I want to get back to J.E. McNeil, Conversations with the Other. And we've been laying the background, J.E., and there's one other piece I'd love to have you contribute. It's, It's so vivid. When you were working as executive director of the Center on Conscience and War, you talked about the donors who made that work possible. Could you characterize them again? I don't know if this is just Texan overstatement that you do this, or is it just really clearly the people? No, it's completely factual. My largest donor was a evangelical oil magnet, and my second largest donor was an atheist communist trust baby. I should have mentioned the first evangelical donor was also a conservative Republican. I've always maintained that my donors were peace workers and seamless web people and NRA members. So I've always worked with really different kinds of people, both as an attorney and as the director of the center. And would the two of them in the same room been a, a good visit, a good you know reality TV show? I mean, when you get an atheist and a evangelical Christian, conservative Republican, would they fit in the same room? Could they have had conversations with the other? Actually, I think they could have. They're both really sweet people. <laughs> Some of the, the sweetest people I know are atheists, and uh, evangelical Christians are often very sweet people, too. Walk us through now the conversations with the other, what we learn, how we get to this point where we can be a seamless community instead of the siloed community that we are so much now. Sure. I mean, the first thing I would say is if you want further background on how we got to where we are, I always would recommend Dark Money by Jane Mayer and The New Yorker, which talks a lot about that issue. But really, basically, what we're trying to do is to reach out to our community to recreate a little bit of community beyond the people with whom we agree absolutely and to practice skills that pretty much all of us already have. There's seven tools that I try to talk about in the training about ways to frame, to look at, and move forward to reaching out with our relatives that we have these tacit agreements not to talk about this or we have these explicit agreements that we're going to scream at each other if we talk about it. And the first issue is always about perspective. One of the things we easily forget is how different people's perspective can be. For example, I grew up with my sister. We had the same siblings. We grew up in the same house, same parents, same neighborhood, same elementary, junior high, and high school, same church, same vacations. But we're super different people, and we have different memories about what happened during those times. 
So if you can think of two sisters that have such a different perspective, how much more different is the perspective between, say, me living in Washington, D.C., and and you living where you do in Eau Claire? I'm in the big city, well, relatively, and you're in a small town. I'm in the east. You're in the Midwest. Our lives are very different. And how much more different is my life than it would have been had I lived in a small town in Texas or if I lived in Mississippi or Alaska or if I lived in New York City? We have different perspectives, and it doesn't make them wrong because they're different. And one of the training exercises I do is looking at the cylinder and have people talking about what they see and just recognizing that they're completely different, but they're not wrong. To be clear, it's a cylinder sitting in the center of a circle. You've got people sitting around it, so they're seeing a certain face of it, is what I think you're saying. Yes, and so each person gets to describe what they see, and I try to make sure that what they see is really different from what the other person sees. But then then I say, okay, well, well, what do you see that's the same? And so they say, well, you know, it's green, it's got black ink on it, it seems to have all been drawn by the same person that I, what I can see. You know, you put it there. So there were things that we could agree upon that were exactly the same. It's a cylinder, you know. And there are things that were different. And we could either stand there and argue, no, it's a face, no, it's a tree. Or we could just say, okay, you are seeing something differently than I am. When you do the exercise, everybody kind of rolls their eyes and says, well, yeah, you drew something different on each side. But that's the way life is. We actually see different things. We actually experience different things. Even if it's the same thing, our experience will be quite different. So having that thought in mind helps us better understand that people can have difference of life experience that shapes their opinion, and their life experience isn't wrong. And by that life experience, that decision they've made, that choice they've made, makes sense. So that's the first step in trying to understand another person's perspective, another person's opinion, so that we can actually communicate with them, is by accepting that everything they say to us that we may think is wrong may be absolutely correct from their life experience. I was thinking of two people sitting right next to each other, seeing the same part of the cylinder. One of them might be my son, Chris, who hates bananas. They make him sick. He'll throw up just smelling a banana. And the person next to it thinks, wow, happy meals, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So whatever we're seeing, we're also reacting to with our inner perspective. Yeah. From our own life experiences, your son's life experience is bananas are super yucky and other people's life experience are bananas are tasty. So we bring that life experience to whatever we're reviewing and that's part of the point of of doing the perspective exercises and talking about perspective. And the next issue comes up with the framing of language because We don't even think about it half the time we're doing it. We're constantly using our own biases to frame what we say. And I actually was working with a bunch of religious lobbyists on the Hill, and they were writing this white paper, and they were trying to write a neutral white paper so that they could take it to conservatives as well as moderates and liberals about different issues. And so they had written one on the oil industry, oil and gas industry. And it had a sentence in it along the lines, it was about climate issues, and they had a sentence along the line of big oil is the cause of climate warming. And I said, you know, you can't call it big oil. 
And they said, why not? It is. I said, because nobody who works for the oil and gas industry would recognize that term. It immediately gives your politics away. So when you're talking to someone with whom you disagree, you think you're saying something neutral. I want to talk about big oil. Well, that's not neutral. It's not a neutral sentence because you've used a term that has a political viewpoint embedded in it. People also choose these terms for specific purposes. You mentioned, for instance, the kind of dichotomies between pro-life and anti-abortion. I'm pro-life, I'm pro-choice. People choose a term that buttresses their perspective, their objectives already. If we go to a neutral term, if we, you know, we don't say big oil, are we also losing advocacy for the concerns we have? Well, see, that's the whole point that I try to thread through this exercise, through all of these exercises. This is not about advocating your position. It's about communication. There will come a time and place to advocate your position. But before you can get to that place, you have to at least be talking to each other. We're not doing that anymore. So how can I talk to someone, with someone, actually, instead of to someone, How can I communicate with them? How can I hear their perspective if I'm busily trying to create my argument in my speech and in my questions? And that's the theme that runs through this whole thing. And I know that words are powerful. and Exactly that dichotomy you were talking about, the change of calling the death penalty, the death penalty instead of capital punishment, is what made the difference for people, the majority of people, to object to it. When it was called capital punishment, it didn't resonate. They didn't get it. But it's called death penalty, and increasingly people oppose it. So words are powerful. Choices of words are powerful. Absolutely. But right now, you need to choose words that are not powerful, that are neutral, that are words that can be heard by everyone. And calling something the oil and gas industry, it's a descriptive term. That's who they are. They're the oil and gas. They're not big oil, which is a political statement. That's an important thing when you're trying to communicate with people. You mentioned as a topic global warming is how we frame it, is global warming on either left or right, people attached to these words, either a very positive or very negative point of view. How do you talk about something like that without talking? Yeah, it's very difficult because it's very difficult to use any set of words that describes the issue without it being politicized. However, the whole sentence was, you know, big oil causes global warming. So the first thing we'd want to do is get rid of the word causes because that is, again, assigning all blame to one group and isn't accurate in any case. They may... uh, Contribute to? They've contributed to it. And you can say that their advocacy for the use of fossil fuel has contributed to it and their production of the fossil fuel. And then you can try to find a less triggering word. Global warming has become a trigger word. Whether it's an accurate statement or not, it doesn't matter anymore because it's a triggering word. So uh, climate disruption seems to be less triggering. And there may be something even better that somebody else can come up with that's less triggering. But the goal is to try to say a sentence where you're not turning people's brains off and just engaging in their gut reaction. So if I say big oil causes global warming, lots of people are not going to hear me after I say that sentence. But if I say the oil and gas industry's advocacy for fossil fuels has contributed to disruption of the, of the climate, more people are going to be able to listen to my next sentence. 
because they're not going to be triggered into their knee-jerk, because knee-jerk works on both the left and the right, reaction. And that's an important thing if you want to communicate. How can I communicate without triggering knee-jerk reactions? That takes us really to the next issue, questioning, because really the best thing you can do if you want to communicate with someone is ask them a question. There's a really nice TED Talk about this young woman who was with Westboro Baptist Church and how she eventually came away from it. And one of the things she said that really resonated with me was that when people would ask her questions about what she believed, that that gave her freedom to talk, but it also gave her eventually freedom to ask her own questions. So it was less that they were coming and arguing with her, you're wrong, blah, blah, blah. They would just say, so you know, what's your belief about this? And they just would ask her questions. That was a safer communication for her. So it's an important tool to use. But there's questions and there's questions. You know, in the law business, we talk about leading questions and non-leading questions. And basically, a leading question is, did you or did you not talk to me last week about this conversation? Your only answer is yes or no. That's a leading question. I've told you the answer, really, and you can only answer yes or no. And that's not a very uh, that's not a question that's going to elicit much information. Where a non-leading question is, can you tell me about when we talked about this issue before? And then that opens up an opportunity for you to say, well, last week we were talking on the phone about this, or we were on Facebook and and interacted, and then we got on the phone and we talked and. It elicits more information from you, and it gives you an opportunity to give me more information and for me to hear more information. And the friends are are especially notoriously bad about this. We have something called queries where they say, do you make your meeting welcoming to all people? I mean, you know what the answer is supposed to be. This is not the kind of question you want to ask. You want to ask a question where you actually learn something. And that's, remember, neutral. So you might want to say to someone, what do you find intriguing about Donald Trump? It's a very open question, and it doesn't imply that Donald Trump is anything other than Donald Trump. But it does ask for information, and they may still be defensive, but there's less in that question to be defensive about because it's an open question. I didn't say, what do you find intriguing about the guy with the little hands. You miss the orange guy with little hands or whatever insult one would use, yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can either ask a question that's that's an attack and also you want to make sure you're not asking a question where you're setting up your argument for later. So if you were asking questions about immigrants, so a question where you say, well, was your family uh, immigrants? When did they come to the country? You can make that a neutral question, or you can decide that you're going to use it to say, aha, you're an immigrant family, and yet you deny these other immigrants. So trying to ask questions to beef up an argument later, again, this is not the time or place for it. You're trying to just really hear what the other person has to say, and you may be surprised. So this is about questioning, which is one of the steps that you offer in your process, conversations with the other. We start with perspective, we went to framing, and now we've got questioning. By the way, Jay, in friends practice, in Quaker practice, I'm sure you know this as well, some people get attached to questions that are leading, but in the clearness committee process, and Parker Palmer has done such a good job of explaining how to do this, 
asking open-ended questions is so much more welcoming that it's much less likely to put the other person's back up and it means you to know each other and you establish you're going to find some things that are in common and some things that aren't but you're going to be able to hear each other when we aren't looking for a particular answer and we aren't putting it into a narrow yes no type silo so yeah questioning is third step in the process you offer in conversations with the other where do we go from there it's one sort of sub-step, which is sometimes you ask a question, somebody answers, and then you need clarity. And again, here's an opportunity to throw in your argument or just ask for clarity. You don't need to say, how dare you say that, you know, what basis do you, that kind of question. You want to ask a question if you need clarity, saying, I'm sorry, I didn't really understand what you meant by this word that's a word I'm not familiar with or I'm not clear about your your meaning in that sentence. But that then takes us to the, because these intertwine so much, which is listening is the fourth issue. Listening is, is really hard. I mean, we tend to, in conversations or, or communication, we tend to, many of us, listen with an eye as to what our response is going to be. And I'm asking you not to do that. I'm asking you to just try to listen to the person and not sit there plotting your next response. I'm asking you to take the time to hear what they say and perhaps ask, like I said, a clarifying question. The story I always talk about with listening is about this time a long time ago when I was traveling a lot, and I had the rare occasion of rather than staying in somebody's house, I was staying at a hotel. So I gave myself a treat to go down to the bar and have a drink before I went upstairs to my room and go to bed. And I made the mistake of sitting at the bar, which basically signals you're willing to have a conversation. And this guy came up to me and said, oh, you're not from around here. And I was very reticent. I would just give him one-word answers or two-word answers. And he was clearly trying to figure out why I was there and, and who I was. And I was clearly, I was in a very, very conservative area, and I was didn't know this guy. And I just didn't really want him to know that I was a peace activist because I didn't want to have an argument right before I went to bed. But he finally gets it out of me. I said, well, I'm here to talk about conscientious objection to war. And he goes off. He just starts ranting about conscientious objectors. And I listen to him, and I listen to him for a while. And he talks about, in particular, that you shouldn't have cowards when you're out in, in battle because it's dangerous for everyone. And that was one of the phrases he used in his, his rant. So when he finally wound down, I said to him, I reflected back to him, I understand your concern about having cowards in a battle situation that would make it dangerous for everyone. Did you know that conscientious objectors have won medals of honor, which a really hard thing to do. You have to basically, very few people win a medal of honor alive. They're usually dead because they've sacrificed themselves. And he says, no, I didn't know that. And so then, you know, I, I've reflected back. He knows I've heard him. And that I agree with part of what he said. And then I try to find something that will help us move along the conversation without it being this yelling match about conscience. They are so brave people having sacrificed their lives, you know, on starvation diets and things. But the listening part is very difficult, I think, for many people. It's especially for people like me. I, when I go to conferences, I usually make myself a little postcard I put in my hand. And the little postcard says, W-A-I-T, wait. 
that stands for Why Am I Talking? Because even within a training or a conferencing, there are people like me who are always ready to answer. And we need to make sure that we step back and let other people speak because that's how we get a real conversation going and, and communication with people. And that's even among ourselves when we agree. But it also works when we're listening to, with people that we don't agree. Take the time to stop and listen instead of anticipating what you're going to answer or what your argument is going to be against that. So that's step four of the process you offer in conversations with the other when people have J.E. McNeil come and visit them. And again, folks, I do have a link to J.E. McNeil. Her Facebook page is the best place to get a hold of her and her work with On the Level LLC. So that's step four. I think we've got three more to go and we've got some minutes left, but not too many. Well, the other ones are shorter, but let me give one last thing on listening, which is you should give the person a benefit of the doubt that they're not trying to say something hurtful or mean. Then maybe they are, but give them the benefit of the doubt. And the next step we've already crept into because they all interlink to a certain extent, which is speaking, and trying to make sure that when you do finally speak that you, again, are not lashing out, that you're not arguing with them at this point. You might be giving them information or asking them questions. You might be telling them a story about yourself that you think they would find interesting that give them a little perspective about who you are, that you uh, try to communicate without arguing, without laying groundwork for an argument or arguing, but just telling about yourself or your perspective. And we need to be careful when we tell our perspective, because, especially with humor, because what one person might find funny, another person might find very off-putting. I know I, I recently watched a program where it was supposed to be hysterically funny, and I just found it sort of silly and gross. But clearly other people thought it was funny. But when you're trying to communicate, you don't want to have that kind of reaction. There are going to be times when somebody's going to say something truly offensive, and that's when you have to stop and decide... There's a difference between saying a vulgar term for a woman that refers to a body part and saying tomboy or feminist. And it evokes a different reaction in me. And there are times that I can let it roll off, and I should let it roll off, especially if I'm trying to hear their story. I need to try not to let their words interfere with me hearing what they're really saying. But there are times when that's just so rough that you you need to call it out, that it's just so offensive that you need to call it out, such as if somebody said what's now become the N-word. But there are ways to call it out that are not, again, getting back into the fight, which is saying something along the lines of, you know, that word just makes me so uncomfortable that I can't listen to you. Can you find a different word? And that may work and that may not. And you may decide at that point to go to the sixth step, which is walk away. And that's an important step, too, because in any kind of conversation where you're talking with somebody with whom you vehemently disagree, there's going to come a time when you're angry or they're angry. And walking away is not a bad thing. It's how you do it. So if you walk away and make it clear that you're walking away, but that you're not necessarily ending all communication and you're not using it to attack back, so you're not sending a flaming email or screaming at them saying, I can't stand this anymore, I'm walking out. But you say something more along the lines of, you've given me a lot to think about. I might need to take some time to think about it. I'll be right back. You don't give any recriminations or ultimatums. 
And then the final step, which is the one where I think most people have had experiences where they've gotten up to this point where they walked away. But there's one more step, which is critical, which is walking back, coming back to the conversation. These relationships were destroyed over time. They have to be rebuilt over time. We have to make some kind of commitment to the notion that we want to communicate, that we want to relate to these people in a a way where we can talk about anything, even if we don't agree with each other. That's the only way we'll rebuild the community, the mixing bowl of, of a salad is what I always like to think of the country, where we all have different identities and thoughts and beliefs, and that that's okay because we recognize that we're all part of this wonderful community that the United States is, this wonderful experiment that sometimes gets so ugly and so depressing (laughs) and other times is so joyous and wonderful and that we need to continue to hold on to each other regardless of what we believe about who's present. That gets us toward the end of your process in the conversations with the other interactive workshop. Again, folks, we've been speaking with J.E. McNeil. Conversations with the other is training workshop that she offers. You can contact her. We have the link for her Facebook page. Good place to get a hold of her on Facebook. Jay McNeil is the name. On the level is the LLC that she does this under to try and help bring a nation together. Again, she's been here now, I think, for the fourth, fifth time for Spirit in Action over the 13 years we've existed. Remember to go to our website to fill out our Better Know Listener survey. Help us know you, and we'll enter you in our drawing for either $25 or some Northern Spirit Radio swag, T-shirts, tote bag, and music. It's all great stuff. And I so value you tuning in, being part of this conversation with Jay McNeil. Again, she's an attorney, worked for the Center on Conscience and War for 11 years, and she's done so much more good work to try and help people listen to one another and support each other in community. Thank you so much for doing that work, J.E., and thank you for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it every time. That's all we have of J.E. McNeil in this broadcast, but there was some really important interchange that we couldn't fit into the broadcast. So I hope you go to northernspiritradio.org and listen to the sizable bonus excerpt, which we had to provide separately. Can we trust them to compromise, for example, and to listen to us? That and more dealt with in our bonus excerpt. But in any case, we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.